If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 21. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we remember the scene after Jesus rose from the dead of how he was with some folks, with his disciples, and, and, and made it clear that all the law and the prophets, the whole word of God points to him. Father, we are beneficiaries of being able to look back at the cross, whereas others, believers before the time of Christ, had to look ahead at what you would provide. But Father, we, your gathered people, we want to see Jesus today. We want to see our Savior. And we thank you that he is made known in his word, in your word. And so be pleased, Father, to show us Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Y'all might be familiar with these terms. They seem to have been in the news lately. Accusation. Probable cause. Arrest. Indictment. Trial. Verdict. Fines and or imprisonment. Over the past year, a friend of mine has often told me something. Uh, he says he gets it from someone else. I've been trying to track down the actual source, but it goes like this. If you're guilty, you don't have a defense. If you're innocent, you don't need a defense. Did you hear that? If you're guilty, you don't have a defense. If you're innocent, you don't need a defense. Now that sounds really good, doesn't it? Sounds like it's going to help us avoid a lot of trouble, right? But upon a bit of reflection, it may not be such good advice after all, especially if you're innocent. Now, there is a time to be silent. Think of how Isaiah describes the suffering servant, the lamb going to the slaughter. Peter picks up on that theme and it speaks of Jesus entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, being silent before his accusers. So there's a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak in your own defense or to have someone speak for you, to have an advocate, to have a lawyer, an attorney, to have a counsel. Now, in our text this morning, we'll see Paul speak in his own defense. Well, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Let's find out. Um, well, how did we get here? Uh, a brief review of where we were last week, uh, arrival and arrest, uh, chapter 21, verses 17 through 36. Remember, Paul arrived, he was warmly received, he was advised by uh, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, to uh, make a concession to help uh, dispel these rumors that Paul uh, didn't care about the law. Uh, it was that time to join with these other men doing a Nazarite, Nazarite vow to, to pay um, for them, uh, to, to be in part of a purification uh, ritual. He was doing that in the temple, and what happens? He's assaulted 
based on false charges, that he's against the people, against the law, against the temple, but also that other charge of bringing a Gentile, a non-Jew, into prohibited areas of the temple. But we saw toward the end of our text last week that he was arrested by the Romans. He was taken into protective custody because the Jewish hostility and the Jewish opposition to the gospel was prepared to take Paul's life, to kill him. They were an enraged mob seeking mob rule and mob justice. And what does God do in his sovereign providence? He provides the civil servants, the the Roman occupiers to save Paul's life. We're going to pick up in verse 37 and read just a few verses and make some comments. You remember the last words of the mob of the people were away with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission. So Paul has been arrested. And the Roman tribune, we'll learn his name later, is bringing him into the barracks. And and, and Paul stops and He's respectful. May I say something to you? I I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now remember, the Jews assumed that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. And here this Roman tribune assumes that Paul is this Egyptian revolutionary. And if you look at uh, Josephus' Antiquities and the History of Israel, you find out that yes, there was a, a revolutionary who gathered several thousand men and they were... They camped out in the wilderness and they were going to march on Jerusalem like the walls of Jericho. And the walls of Jerusalem were going to fall down and they were going to kill the, um, uh, the Romans um, who occupied Jerusalem and Palestine. And yet that plot was uncovered and Felix, I believe, was the governor who put that revolt, that political insurrection, uh, it ended it before it really began. And yet the leader escaped and this Roman tribune thinks that this may be Paul. Excuse me, yeah, that this, uh, Paul may be this Egyptian. But Paul says, of course, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. It's an important city. Please let me speak to the people. And you see in verse 40, he's given permission. He's given permission. So he, he requests a permission to speak to the tribune, but now he's going to request to be heard. In other words, He says to the Jewish crowd, uh, listen to me, listen to me. Join with me as I pick up in verse 40 uh, through uh, verse 2 of chapter um, 22. And when he had been given and, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said. 
This is amazing, isn't it? The crowd that had just tried to kill him, Paul is respectful. He addresses this crowd as what? Brothers and fathers. He's already identifying with him. He's respectful. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 20. Hear the defense that I now make before you. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on. Sometimes it's right before our eyes. Paul says what he's doing. He's making a defense. The word is an apology. He's preparing to give a defense. He wants to build bridges. It's, it's like what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 and 14. 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. And I had it marked, but it is gone. He says this. Peter writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But if, even if you should be, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within, that is in you. And then Paul goes on to say, "Yet do it with or Peter. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Paul and Peter are on the same track, prepared to give a defense, doing it with gentleness and respect. He's saying this, in the language, not of Greek, but Hebrew, most likely the Hebrew dialect of Aramaic. He's identifying with the people in his defense. And his defense is in the format of a personal testimony. A personal testimony. Now, Paul is not arguing in court over the facts. He's going to talk about his life. It's his personal testimony because oftentimes people who will not or cannot concentrate on an argument are nonetheless quickly and immediately interested in a story, in a personal narrative. Paul is, as it were, writing his autobiography here, and he's going to pers- trying to persuade the listeners that the charges that they have made, that he is against the people, against the law, against the temple, are, are groundless. And the fact that he would bring a Gentile into the courts of the temple are, are, are groundless. And so he's making his defense through a personal testimony. And he's going to say three things, and this is the outline. Three things. First, I'm a Jew. Second, who met the Lord, the righteous one. And third, who's been commissioned to go and be a witness. So his defense before a Jewish crowd, he's going to do it in the form of a personal testimony where he says, I'm a Jew who met the Lord, the righteous one, and who has been commissioned to go. First, I'm a Jew. Join with me as I pick up in verse 3 through verse 5. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, 
but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Here Paul states his Jewish credentials, his birth, his upbringing, his, his training. He is talking about his personal loyalty to his Jewish origins and his faith. He's got Jewish bona fides. In other words, but not only is he going to speak about his Jewish credentials, in particular, he speaks of his zealousness for God. Look where he says this at the end of verse 3, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Interesting. He's saying to the crowd, that crowd that was going to kill him, Hey, I'm zealous for God just as you're zealous for God. Paul's education in the law under Gamaliel, well respected, entailed not only exhaustive detail, but also scrupulous precision in application. And even though Paul says he's just like them in their zealousness for God, his zeal for Torah, the law and tradition is unsurpassed. I want to move over to Philippians 3 for just a moment and just read a couple of verses. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Remember, Paul is, is contrasting a righteousness that comes by what you do versus a righteousness that comes from who you believe. And he says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. And where did his zealousness for the Lord lead? It led to service, service to God. It wasn't just what Paul believed about God. It's what Paul did for God or Saul at the time. And what was his service? It's in the form of violent opposition to the way, violent opposition to this new sect in Judaism who are following this itinerant rabbi who supposedly came back from the grave. He's violently opposed. He's trying to eradicate what he considers a false and dangerous path of life. One commentator looking at this passage says this, one of the most exasperating things about self-righteous rebellion against God is that it can appear in the guise of zeal for God. Here's Paul. Zealous for the Lord, doing God's will, he believes. You've got to ask the question, is Paul's 
zealousness, uh, well-advised or ill-advised. Remember when he writes the Roman church? He writes the Roman church this in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's doing that in his personal testimony here in Jerusalem. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not descend Submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's, he's spouted off his credentials. He's talked about his zealousness for the Lord. He's, he's basically saying, even though you're zealous too, I was more zealous. And my zealousness was a service to the Lord to eradicate and extinguish Christianity. So ask yourself this question. I have to ask myself this question. I have at times, sadly, been zealous for the things of the Lord that I have run over people. Have you ever done that? Can that be? Can you be so sure and certain of God's will and so sure and precise and certain you're obeying God that you would run over your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think we've all done that. I've done that. And this narrative text puts the mirror up to us. Yes, we're to be zealous. Is it a zealousness for the Lord that's based on knowledge? Or is it ignorance? Well, after establishing his Jewish credentials, Paul turns to an event, an encounter that changed his life. He speaks of the time that he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in Acts, three times we see of the conversion of Paul. Uh, Luke narrated it earlier in Acts 9. Here in chapter 22 and in chapter 26, Paul narrates his own conversion story. And what we see, most of all, is divine initiative and supernatural intervention. So Paul says, I'm a Jew who met the Lord, the righteous one. Uh, join with me as I read verses 6 all the way down to 16. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone 
of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Well, here in the first century, on the road to Damascus is an audio-visual experience. Remember, we talked about Paul, something happening on the way to Jerusalem. Well, here, something definitely happened to Saul, the Pharisee, on the way to Damascus. He saw a great light, blinded at the noon hour, brighter than the sun. And it's most likely an echo of Deuteronomy 28, 29 that speaks of one of the covenant curses of unfaithfulness is you will be struck blind at midday and grope around. Huh, Paul, excuse me, Saul, I am the faithful one. I do it right. There's nobody that does it better than me. He is being cursed for unfaithfulness. Blinded by the light. He saw a great light and he hears a voice. And he's, and he's careful to say that there are witnesses. There are witnesses who, who, who are aware of the light, who, who hear a voice, but they don't understand. It's not Paul's subjective um, psychiatric disorder. No, it's an objective event that's, being, that's taking place. And the first thing we hear is the Lord ask a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then there's more questions than answers. Notice the first two questions that Paul asked. Who are you, Lord? Right there, he's recognizing he's in the presence of someone greater and more powerful to him than him. Who are you, Lord? And the answer, of course, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then if you skip down to verse 10, he's got another question. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the answer provided is get up and go into Damascus where you'll be told what to do. You see, this is Saul's Pentecost experience. Remember the end of Peter's sermon? He speaks of you crucifying the Lord. And, and what do he say? We were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? That's Paul. What, what shall I do, Lord? So God, the Lord, gives instructions to Paul via Ananias. And notice how Ananias is described. A devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all. Remember, who's the teacher of, of Paul? Gamaliel. And who is he? The one who teaches according to the strict manner of the law. You see, Paul is saying... Hey guys, I, I'm one of you. I, I, I'm Jewish. I'm, I respect the law and the temple. And I'm for the people of Israel. Look, Gamaliel taught me. There's no one better. And look who God uses, Ananias, who's, who's a devout man according to the law, well spoken of. And what is Paul supposed to do? To know God's will. And, and, and what is God's will? What is God's will? To know his will. And I think that comma in verse 14 is, here's what he means to know his will. To see 
the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. In other words, what's the will of God for Saul? To see Jesus and to listen to him. And he's referred to by Ananias as the righteous one. Oh, the Hebrews, the Jews would have known what that is. Isaiah, that obedient servant, the one wounded for others, justifying many. By calling him the righteous one, here we see the injustice of Israel's mistreatment of Jesus, but also the only hope for Israel, for us. And here, without saying it, as Paul sees him and he hears him, it's the heart of the gospel. You see, here's the risen, exalted Jesus of Nazareth. The innocent victim put to death who's been vindicated. You see, the righteous one, Jesus, though innocent, dies in the place and on the behalf of the guilty. Have we all not heard that before? The righteous one dies in the place and on the behalf of the guilty. And then in verse 15, For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Indeed, that's what Paul's doing in his very testimony, in his defense. You see, Jesus in his resurrection power here is the key for distinguishing between proper and misguided zeal for God. Jesus, in other words, is the litmus test. Because if you're if your zeal for the Lord doesn't end up focusing on Jesus, being centered and grounded on Jesus, then it's misguided. It may be zealous, but it's a misguided zeal because God's word guides our zeal toward Jesus. So the mirror here is, is not only to ask ourselves: is our zeal um, uh, well-advised or ill-advised, but also, is our zeal guided or misguided? It's good questions that we all have to ask ourselves. Now, through God's amazing grace, notice Paul was not consumed by God's wrath, but rather commissioned for God's work. So Paul tailors his testimony, and so now his story moves to the temple in Jerusalem. Join with me as I pick up in verse 17. When I had returned to, Jesus, to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Notice where Paul says he heads. And we don't know exactly when he gets back to Jerusalem um, in Galatians, there's a gap of time. But, but here, for his purposes, Paul says, after Damascus, I went to Jerusalem and in the temple, the holy place, right? 
Isaiah in the holy place. He's in the holy place praying. Oftentimes we think of things happening after prayer. Here is something happening during prayer. And it's interesting, isn't it? At the beginning and end, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. And then at the end, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So at the beginning and the end, the Lord is directing Paul to leave Jerusalem, to get out, to go. And, and what's in the middle? What's in the middle? Paul is saying, I can't go. I've done too many bad things. I'm guilty. God, you can't use me. I've hurt your people. I've hurt your church. I've approved. I've given my voice to people being killed. God, I'm guilty. I've got to be cleaned up. Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what happens? Atonement, the call and the commission. You see, it's not the terror of the law that changes the believer, but it's the sweetness of the gospel that changes the believer. Paul is saying to God, I'm guilty, and the Lord is basically saying, I've taken away your guilt through the person and work of Jesus, who you have met. You know, in my pastoral work with people, especially professing believers, their biggest problem is what to do with my guilt. Whether it's true guilt or false guilt, sometimes it's hard to tell. But believers who are professing believers still, to this day, have God, if you really knew me for who I am, how could you, how could you favor me? What I've done is too great. There's no way to atone for this. What do you do? You keep pointing people to Jesus, who in our place and on our behalf lived a perfect life of obedience that we can't live, that we're called to live, but we can't live, and died a sacrificial death for the punishment that we deserve. It's interesting. Paul protests. I'm not qualified. I'm too sinful. Look what I've done. And God calls him and commissions him nonetheless. God calls Paul to go. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Notice it's not leave me. But I'm going to go with you, Paul, as you go to the Gentiles. It's the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What we've seen thus far is scenes from before, during, and after Paul's conversion. There's evidence that's substantiated by witnesses that his life of Jewish piety and his calling to preach the universal gospel are compatible. The charges are false. But the opposition is real. And so let's look finally at verse 22, where a speech is interrupted and abruptly ends. A speech that ends poorly. 
Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he does not, for he should not be allowed to live. Look back, verse 36 of chapter 21, away with him. Verse 22 of chapter 22, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul had once again tried to convince his countrymen that faith in Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment, not the repudiation of God's covenant with Israel. Because when people, you see, react to the preaching of the gospel, they're either glad or they're mad. Their heart is even either softened and melted or it's hardened and becomes like granite. You see, for the Jews, making Gentiles into Jews was fine. That's proselytism. But evangelism, making Gentiles into Christians without making them Jews first, According to Paul's audience, the crowd was an abomination. Saying that Jews and Gentiles were equal, that both needed to come to God through Jesus Christ, they couldn't accept that. Paul is giving his testimony and it's interrupted and he's told he shouldn't even be allowed to live. Jesus, speaking of what he has been called to do, to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. They heard his graciousness and his words, but then what happened? Jesus talked about the work of God outside Israel, to the widow of Zarephath, to Naaman, the Syrian army commander, and that Jesus of Nazareth who was well-received in an instant is no longer well-received. Why? Because they were threatened. He's speaking against us, saying that he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, as John would say in his first chapter of his gospel. Jesus' speech did not end well. Paul's speech did not end well. At first, Jesus is received graciously, and then they try to kill him. You know, in the first century, you've got an us versus them. And isn't that the case here in the 21st century as well? We're the good guys. The folks out there are the bad guys. We're the good political party. Those are the bad political party. We're the good culture people. They're the bad culture people. We're the people that do church right. They're the people that do church wrong. My friends, us versus them will destroy a church. If you've received the mercy of God in Christ, it's not us versus them. It's won't you, won't you come to know who we've come to know? Us versus them, and they want to kill Paul, and it will kill the church today. 
So how does looking back at our history, this narrative account, serve to help us move forward in our mission? Let me suggest just a few ways looking back helps us move forward as we wrap up. First, we're reminded here of the unmistakable commitment to the cause of Christ. Notice Paul's courage and determination, at once remarkable and understandable. He's met the Lord. He has a personal relationship with Jesus. Instead of being killed based on the wrath of God, he's commissioned for the work of God. He's committed. He's all in. You know, when unbelievers see us who claim to be believers all in, committed to Jesus, there's a gospel integrity. So we see, first of all, an unmistakable commitment to the cause of Christ. And second, we see an incredible balance in communication to people. What do I mean? Notice Paul is incredibly bold. He has courage, and yet he is, gen- he is generous and flexible. He is compassionate. Did you notice he avoids unnecessary offense? He, he respects, he identifies with, he even compliments those who tried to kill him. If I was Paul and I was about to be killed, I would respond with either anger and try to hit back or fear and try to run away. Paul has compassion. He, he's courageous and he's sensitive. It's a rare combination. You know, because when we're out sharing Christ, I think we either refuse to say anything or we then speak offensively. My friends, the gospel, the cross will be offensive, but we are called not to be offensive. The message of the cross is offensive. Why? It says one way to salvation, repentance, faith in Jesus. But Paul respects, identifies with, compliments, finds areas of agreement. He didn't start out first with my call to the Gentiles. He starts out with how he is a Jew of Jews. He's building bridges. You see, Paul's motive here was obviously not to win the argument, but rather to win the heart. Paul's Motive was not to win the argument, but rather to win the heart. Is that my motive? Is that your motive? Years ago, I heard a statement, it's better to be godly than right. It's better to be godly than right. He wasn't trying to win an argument. He was trying to win the hearts of his people. And finally, after unmistakable commitment to the cause of Christ, incredible balance in how he communicates to people, third and finally, there's clarity that salvation is of the Lord. You see, even the best efforts at communicating the gospel do fail. It failed for Paul. It failed for Jesus. We speak. But God works. God intervenes. Jonah finally got it. Salvation is of the Lord. My friends, are those of you here today in the crowd of people that Paul is addressing? 
Are any of you seeking a righteousness that comes from someone or something outside of Christ? You see, the original religion of man in his rebellion against God is I can make my right, I can make myself right with God. Paul is saying it's only through Jesus. May all of us not resist the call of the gospel that we've heard from God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this display of boldness and humility, of confidence in you, but compassion toward people that Paul exercised. Oh, Father, thank you for this, for allowing us to see the heart of a man who, though he could, in arguments, probably win nine times out of ten, he wasn't interested in winning an argument as much as he was interested in winning a heart. Father, may that be our posture. May that be our tone. May we individually and me and we as a church point people to Jesus, the righteous one in whom salvation alone is found. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.